0: welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these
1: conversations. I'm here uh, with my co director at the Center for the Political Future, Mike Murphy. We're going to have a panel on what's happening, how we can drain the partisanship from this issue, what other things we can get done. At the end of it, by the way, we'll have about 20 minutes of questions from you. We have extraordinary guests Christine Todd Whitman, 50th governor of New Jersey from 1994 to 2001, and a former Mike Murphy client. She was administrator of the EPA during president george w bush's administration and she runs the whitman strategy group a consulting firm that specializes in energy and environmental issues she also recently spoke at the democratic national convention which i don't think she ever expected to do governor michelle lujan grisham is the 32nd governor of new mexico the first latina democratic governor in the country she was elected to congress in 2010 She served three terms in Washington, then was elected governor of New Mexico, and in 2019, she oversaw one of the most productive legislative sessions in New Mexico state history that featured a historic investment in public education and a landmark transition to clean energy. Bina Venkateraman is a journalist, author, and science policy expert, was senior advisor for climate change innovation in the Obama administration. Currently, she is an editorial page editor at the Boston Globe and former director of global policy initiatives at the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT. And, of course, my friend Mike Murphy and sometime opponent. Governor Lujan Grisham, I think we're going to start with you. New Mexico has implemented under your leadership very strong regulations to curb emissions and to hold bad actors accountable. You did this in a state where oil and gas are important industries. How did you get it done, and how did it affect the economy?
2: Well, a couple of things, and I hope you don't mind that I do this, Professor, but to make sure that we're providing uh, the most accurate information, I'm actually the first Democratic Hispanic governor in the country. Ah, New that's Mexico, true. Both two women <laughs> Hispanic governors, and uh, I was elected to Congress in... In 2012, in 2010, I was elected as a commissioner in the largest uh, populated county in the state of New Mexico.
1: All I could say is my cheat sheet was wrong.
2: (laughs) That happens to me a lot, so I can totally understand, but I wanna keep you and I uh, honest. Uh, And I really appreciate this question because I think there's a notion that for oil and gas states, for uh, fossil fuel energy states, that there's no way to uh, curb carbon emissions, deal with greenhouse gases, and to be really clear that you're moving as immediately and swiftly as you can into a clean energy economy because it becomes just an economic issue in the moment. And people get very nervous about talking about saving the planet and making sure that you've got an economic future. Uh, and uh, uh, we fund our entire education system using oil and gas. And the other thing I want this group to know is we're the third largest oil and gas state in the country, with one of the largest oil and gas reserves anywhere in the United States. So we have to really think about what we can do to be responsible citizens uh, and address climate change. So here's what we did. We made sure that we did it right out of the gate, uh, after I got elected because there was real momentum by consumers who are very clear and by young people who understand unequivocally, A, New Mexico doesn't have the water resources, B, we have the, we're like the third sunniest state in the nation. We have incredible wind resources. In fact, right now we're leading in wind energy investments and all the major grids. So if you're going to do grid modernization, come together in a tiny rural community in southeastern New Mexico, and rural frontier communities are never going to have a chance to have a diversified economy if you don't move into a clean energy economy. And we're an innovative state and a high-tech state, so it all links together. So this is how we did it. Democrats, in large part, but not entirely, really ready to embrace a clean energy economy. Republicans interested in methane. Why are we flaring it? And why aren't we doing jobs before you get to the air quality and absolute horrific nature of that pollution, we're just burning money. So we've got a variety of opportunities to harness that in a transition. And we used both our agencies. Typically, they compete. We used our oil and gas cabinet to talk about regulating for bad actors so it was fair. And we used our environmental agency to deal with the methane uh, rules. So we're gonna basically be capturing 98% of all methane emissions. And the last strategy that really made a difference is we used our national labs and our private sector laboratories who are engaged in any number of ways of high-tech efforts to look where we have methane leaks And problems. And also, they're looking at strategies that would create fuel cells with methane on site. It was tough to combat, right? An economic strategy for the future using science, and it moved the entire industry. And we got nearly universal support out of our legislature as a result.
1: Nearly universal support. So let me ask Governor Whitman, and then Mike, you might want to weigh in on this too. What is the likelihood that the Republican Party can? move on climate change, engage in measures like this, as they apparently did in New Mexico, and how can GOP leaders speak about climate change to their core constituencies so they can create a new consciousness about it?
3: Well, there are a couple of things rolled up in that question. Uh, The first one is, yes, Republicans can get back to talking about the environment in an intelligent way that respects science you know, the environment used to be a Republican issue. The first president to put aside land was Abraham Lincoln with Yosemite. And we all know about Teddy Roosevelt and the national parks. And it was Richard Nixon who established the Environmental Protection Agency and signed the Clean Air Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act. And so it's been a Republican issue for a long time until the last about 10 years, when it's all revolved about regulation and the hatred of regulation and government coming in and telling you everything you had to do. And a mistake, I believe, by environmentalists calling for uh, climate change and saying it's all or nothing and humans cause it, which humans don't. But we certainly are exacerbating a natural phenomena to the point where nature can no longer absorb it and we have to act. But we're seeing it every day. And the way to really, I believe, approach the Republicans, some of what the governor did absolutely, showing where the economic development can come from engaging in and developing new technologies for being smart about how you deploy your energy around the state and help communities grow because of that. Those are the kinds of things that will appeal to them. A lot of the Christian conservatives are coming together now and saying, God gave us the earth, then it's our responsibility to tend to her and take care of her. And so that's an appeal for Republicans. But the way to save money because of the cost of what we're paying for these storms, these droughts, the fires, all the things that are coming to us from the the climate change. And then when you add into that, it's a national security issue about which Republicans are supposed to care a great deal, because it destabilizes countries that are already not perhaps the strongest, and pushes people into cities where there are no jobs for them, where there are no housing for them, and where al-Qaeda and ISIS go to recruit, and where organized crime takes over there are a whole lot of those issues you can pick out any one of them but the good news is there already is a coalition in the congress of republicans who are pro climate change and taking action on climate change and the public is pushing us there because back in 1970 when richard nixon established and signed a legislation establishing the environmental protection agency it didn't come because congress came up with this idea it came because people said enough already We're sick of rivers spontaneously combusting. We're sick of the land looking like a garbage dump. And we're sick of being told we can't go outside because of bad air quality. So we have a role to play as citizens, and we're doing that. And you're seeing it particularly, as the governor mentioned, amongst young people. Young people are really passionate, and it's their future. They know it. And we have proven again and again that it's not a zero-sum game, that you can have a thriving economy and still have a clean and green environment. And we need to remind people of that. Our history shows it. And we need to give them the talking points that allow them to be comfortable when speaking about it.
1: You know, that's very interesting because 1970 was the first Earth Day, and I'm sufficiently advanced in age that I was actually there. Uh, (laughs) Well, you weren't
3: alone, believe me. I was (laughs) there
1: too. (laughs) I I do think, Mike, what's your take on this? Can can the Republican Party be moved on this? Is the governor right?
0: Well, I think the governor is right. Uh, my friend, the governor is almost always right. We, we, we yeah, go yeah, back to all kinds my, of, <laughs> <my shoes. laughs> hey, you're not even a client anymore, I can say that. So I agree with what Governor Whitman said. The problem in the Republican, well, now, first of all, there are, are green shoots, so to speak, of hope in the party. The more, the people in suburban districts, that are a bit more forward-looking, and they have a more forward-looking electorate. So they are forced, as Governor Whitman made this point, they're forced by the politics of their own survival to move on it. The question is the speed of the movement and what the headwinds are. I mean, there are some rural, hardcore Republican towns in Northern California that are now very much hip to the climate change issue because they're on fire. But we don't want climate change politics that lag a crisis, because then we're never going to get the political leadership we need to get in front of this, which is where all the policy leverage to have an impact is. So the question is, how do you get there? Well, there are a couple of problems and challenges on the Republican side. Some may be temporary, some may be structural, but they've all got to be addressed. Number one, politics is very tribal now, and climate change has become sort of a partisan faith issue. And the Democrats may say, hey, we can virtue signal. We're right on this, you knuckleheads. And there's a political profit in that, particularly of younger voters. The problem is, as we know in California initiative politics, when you partisanize an issue, you automatically create an opposition because the minority side of the political equation says, well, if they're for it, i got to be against it. And if they attack me for being against it, I'm really against it. And that tribalism now is particularly deep in the party under the temperament and tone of our our current fearless leader. Now, we we may figure that out in the, the election three weeks from now. So I think there will be a moment, should he lose, as most polls indicate, he shall, where there's going to be some recalculating among the pragmatic politicians in the party about what a modernized conservatism looks like. And when you look at the demography of the next wave of voters, who in time will become all voters, it's clear that the climate change issue is not only a policy impairment, it's a political necessity to survive. So I think you're going to see a certain pace. The thing that I am most interested in, and I think you and Jill might have spoke about this in the earlier panel, is how the argument is reframed from Democrats bashing on slow-moving Republicans to get a language and a policy framework to incentivize Republican politicians to go gain votes on the issue. To be able to go to the metal-bending states and tell somebody who's 52 years old standing on a lathe that they don't have to be afraid of a green job, because right now that's code for AOC sending you to coding school where you're going to get yelled at by a 25-year-old, which is not nearly the future a lot of them want when they have a union, they have friends, they're older in their careers. So, you know, changing the incentives of politics to make this kind of a national Apollo mission, not one party beating up the other party for being Luddite and stupid, is a way to open the door to move Republicans to get where their voters are going. So that's the greatest magnetism in politics. So I'm guardedly optimistic after the presidential election kind of resets things. And then, you know, hopefully we'll make some progress. But it's going to take a new language in the Republican Party, a new kind of approach, then climate change equals Bernie and a Prius you know, that, that equation has got to be shattered politically for the Republicans to be able to, uh, Republican voters to kind of wake
1: up to this, particularly primary voters who have so much power. I want to turn to Bina, but given what Mike's just said, I'd like to ask Governor Luhan Grisham a question. How did you get Republicans to go along with all of this?
2: Well, part of it was to make sure that oil and gas was yeah. interested. So when you've got the large oil and gas producers uh, the XTOs and Exxons and Chevrons who, A, embrace climate uh, change and being uh, responsible to uh, uh, the largest degree for that effort. And actually writing to President Trump saying, look, uh, you've, climate change is real. We can do things about it together. Uh, and in fact, they need power, uh, and in a state like New Mexico, they need water. So they've been incredibly productive. So we do recycled water, never would have gotten that past without oil and gas. We have investments in solar and wind, couldn't have done that without oil and gas. And they were also very clear that they want a predictable future. They want to know what is happening, how it's happening, and what kind of infrastructure will benefit their ability in this new shift. Well... Your business, you give them that predictability, they will support you. And they supported us by making sure that the accountability measures were there too. And in fact, even in this political context where uh, we have a divide, oil and gas industry and the association, they will endorse and support just Republicans. And then every other industry in this uh, climate discussion, then they're going to uh, all uh, support Democrats. That's not the case anymore in New Mexico. Oil and Gas Association either is neutral or very involved in supporting directly Democratic candidates and in that messaging because it is, in fact, their future. And they can't recruit young people and the high-tech workers that they need unless they are accountable to securing a more productive future. So that was the key. Oil and gas, I never would have passed the Transition Act. We wouldn't be in the incredible position that we're in. We wouldn't be retiring, generating uh, uh, stations and uh, coal-fired plants without the oil and gas industry. We would have lost it in our legislative session. And that's not to say that we aren't going to be robust regulators, and it's not to say that they're thrilled with every one of our environmental policies. Uh, That natural tension will continue but having that industry embrace this future and take responsibility changes the political dynamic in its entirety
0: i, I want to just hang a lantern on that from personal experience so our firm has done some work in new mexico on this issue and uh, more than a year ago, I met with um, the CEO of one of the huge oil companies and I I kind of had an old reference point. I thought it would be like, ah, we got to fight these communists. They're trying to, it was the opposite. It was exactly what the governor saying. We have to find a common future we can all agree on because we, unless we're part of the equation and we're all in it together, you know, we're, our business is going to fail and we don't want to fight that. We, we've we got to try to get some, it was 180 degrees from where oil and gas might have been even five years ago. And there are still some holdouts in the industry, but for one of the largest companies to have this point of view, I thought was a huge, huge powerful signal um, of, of what a cooperative future could look like.
1: Bina, your, your terrific book, The Optimist Telescope, uh, stresses the importance of long-term planning on different levels to achieve progress on climate change. And that sounds to me a lot like what we're hearing from the governor, what we just heard from Mike, what we heard from Governor Whitman. How do individuals, businesses, communities, governments and society as a whole do this? How do we get people to focus on the long-term planning?
4: For one, we have a really instructive metaphor or let's say reality uh, happening with COVID-19 right now, which is to say that we see what the cost is, the economic cost, the cost to society, the humanitarian cost and loss of lives from ignoring scientific warnings, from not acting quickly enough uh, on sort of the threat of the pandemic in the US to contain those early outbreaks, those early clusters. And we see sort of the impact of that as it comes down. So we have the opportunity to take that, I think actually as a learning, Uh, manual for dealing with climate change, because we know that climate disasters are having a huge economic toll already, that they will continue to have, have more of that toll if we don't do enough to mitigate both the emissions, but also deal with resilience and preparedness in our communities all around the country and even around the world. So I think in the, on the one hand, we kind of have this reality right now of the pandemic, we, we could actually use this crisis as an opportunity to be instructive to people about the costs of short-sighted thinking, the cost of not acting quickly enough on scientific warnings, If if we so choose to do that as a society, as leaders across society, but also within businesses and within communities. Now, it's not so easy to do this kind of long-term thinking and long-term planning, which is why I wrote a book about it, to sort of lay out a playbook and the sorts of tools and insights that people can draw upon to do it. And it really matters for climate change, it really matters to sort of wed some of those short-term political imperatives, whether it's building those constituencies in business, building those constituencies among young voters who are making a huge impact, we know, not just in the primaries, but also in the general elections going forward so that there is a reason for leaders to take seriously these issues uh, at the beating. And I think you know the latest Pew polls show that a majority of American voters think that this issue is important. They're going to be thinking about it when they go to the ballot box. Uh, how that plays out with the Electoral College is a different question. But I think within state races, for, for the Senate races that are going on around the country, uh, for a lot of local elections as well, climate change becomes a more powerful and powerful issue uh, when people vote on it, when they hold their leaders accountable. And and the reality is that a lot of people care about it as a long-term issue because they know it impacts their children, their grandchildren, their nieces, and their nephews. They care about it from the point of view of, um, as Governor Whitman said, stewardship of the planet. They care about it from the point of view of being good ancestors, good parents to the next generation. So I don't don't so much worry about our care about long-term future and about long-term issues. It's more about wetting those short-term um, incentives and motivations uh, with the right kind of behavior. And I think in in the business environment, it was great to hear Governor Luhan Grisham talk about sort of the way she built those alliances with uh, constituencies in oil and gas. And I think an important point is raised by that, uh, which is that predictability can come from can come from strong laws. It can come from um, regulation. I'm thinking back to under George W. Bush and Governor Whitman, uh, the light bulb efficiency standards and how that created and unleashed innovation in light bulb generation. So there are ways in which regulation and clarity of law can actually build in long-term innovation from sectors of the industry that we want to see make the kinds of innovations that need to happen. On climate change. So I would say uh, a lot of this is about uh, finding those sweet spots, finding those opportunities, but really trying to align the different motivators we have, whether they're political or financial, motivating, getting those levers aligned with the kind of long-term thinking we need to deal with the crisis.
3: Particularly on the point of the cost of ignoring climate change, just as of July 8th of this year, Just in this year, up to July 8th, before you had the big fires in California, before the worst of the hurricanes, we'd had 10 weather-related, climate change-related weather events. And each one of those cost us a billion dollars in recovery. And that was before the worst of what we've seen. So there's a very real Financial impact that can be shown to the American people, and they're getting it. They're getting it because they've been displaced. So many people have been displaced, and are trying to get the help that they need. So it's a, it, it's already there for them. It's there for us to to show to them. Uh, the other thing that I think we need to think about is changing. Well, I agree absolutely that the companies are seeing that they want certainty. That's the most important thing that most companies want. They want certainty. Just tell us where to go. It was like this administration rolling back the car tailpipe emissions. The leaders of some of the biggest auto companies came to them and said, don't do this. I mean, yes, we think the Obama standards went a little too far too fast, but we're on our way there. We're doing it. Don't don't roll these back completely. So this administration at times has worked contrary, scientifical to economic development. But the other problem I think we suffer from is our requirement for publicly traded companies to do quarterly reporting and projections because that makes it m- much more difficult to do the long-term kind of projecting that we need and thinking. And, and we need to take a look at that or send the message that shareholders have got to understand that the important thing is that they're building for the future. And I think shareholders would get it. It's when you get nicked by the SEC and and all those agencies that review you every time you have an annual report and your quarterly earnings come out as well and and the questions that they ask. So there's a lot in this that we have to address, but they're all addressable. and, And I also agree with what the governor said, that young people now are demanding answers when they go to when companies try to recruit them. What are you doing? For the environment, what is your commitment to climate change? And certainly, the companies with which I was associated, was on when I was on the boards, uh, were ones that said that found that their best they, they couldn't they wouldn't have gotten the quality of person that they wanted to hire, a young person, if they hadn't had good answers to those questions.
1: Joe Biden says he's going to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, but of course, mm-hmm. that by itself doesn't achieve the goal of actually reducing the emissions and 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 turning the tide here. What regulations and laws do we need at the federal level? And what's the prospect that we're going to pass them? For example, people talk about a tax or cap on carbon emissions. What's the right way forward here? Well,
3: I'm a carbon tax person. I I believe a tax on carbon is the best way to go rather than a cap and trade. I mean, it's going to take the present. We have to have a change at the top. If we don't have a change at the top, this is not going to happen. Um, Joe Biden, if he comes in, will say, this is an issue we've got to address. He will appoint someone to the head of the EPA who understands the mission, and who's committed to it. We will get back the in the Paris Accord. But you know what? The rest of the world isn't going to take us seriously until we do some stuff here at home. And that means doing something like a tax on carbon. It means taking some really visible steps that shows we are committed. Because right now, people don't trust us because we keep going back on our on our commitments, we will say we will put pressure on the international community to adopt standards that they may or may not like, and then we walk away from it. So right now, before we can really impact the international dialogue, we've got to do some pretty tough stuff here at home. And that is going to come through the regulatory
2: process at the EPA. I think part of the Build Back Better infrastructure plan by Vice President Biden is a really effective tool uh, in Congress, particularly if you had incentives. So look, I need broadband. I got to have $2 billion in broadband investments to realize not only our climate uh, opportunities and uh, meet our challenges and our our goals. Um, And if there was an incentive by having, right, methane emissions and recycled water and accountability in oil and gas, and by having a renewable portfolio standard that's robust, having states meet right, the carbon neutral standards, uh, that those folks get some some incentive or move faster, you're going to create a sea change in a regulatory environment in states because those businesses are going to go to those state legislators and those governors and ask for that support. Uh, And that then creates a meeting in the middle between what's going on with federal leadership and moving states as quickly as you can to embrace those efforts. And I I really think that that can be another sweet spot, if you will, to bring people together. Uh, I know that New Mexico would do as much as we can to uh, 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 embrace that and meet that from electric vehicles and electric vehicle standards and grid modernization and transmission authorities, all of the things that you need so that you're making not only the transitions, but you're creating the environmental accountability standards. Frankly, those guardrails businesses are asking us for.
4: There are a few different components of a federal uh, climate plan, and Joe Biden's plan certainly has some of these components that I think are really critical. Of course, rejoining Paris is sort of a bare minimum, it's the floor. And as Governor Whitman raised, we still have to clean up our own house in order to have credibility in those global arenas. And one, of course, is regulation in a number of ways. One um, is if particularly if we can get it done legislatively, to get a price on carbon in some way, which I think would do a lot. And the other is that just look at the environment we're in. We are in an economic crisis that has... Demanded multiple uh, multi-trillion-dollar stimulus packages, and that is a huge opportunity and lever, and indeed part of the Biden, Biden campaign's thinking. Uh, if you know, if elected, to try to use that stimulus in a way that really invests in green infrastructure, invests in resilient infrastructure around the country, tries to move forward. Uh, things like um, grid modernization, the sort of non sexy parts of dealing with the climate crisis that could have a huge impact um, from an energy efficiency point of view, and from the point of view of really protecting uh, communities. And so, I think there's a real opportunity when people people use the phrase "green new deal." Obviously, that's a resolution; it's not yet a policy, a piece of legislation that has policy components on it. Uh, but I think the New Deal, if you think about the moment that led to FDR's New Deal, um, I'm more thinking that we are kind of in that moment in terms of the economy and the pandemic. And so the kinds of thinking that can be done and the way that can be applied to addressing the climate crisis, whatever name you want to give it, um, is a moment, right? It's a real opportunity we have to take this on in a more ambitious way than it's been taken on in previous administrations.
0: From the right, the issue is going because governors love inf- everybody loves infrastructure. It's just Joe Biden because of COVID is going to inherit a fiscal situation where, in real dollars, we've been spending World War II, and so to make Republicans not go into reflexive no mode, and they're going to have enough power in Washington, particularly in the Senate, even in the minority, to be very troublesome to them. There, there, there's got to be some incentives for the R's, including lightning up on Davis Bacon which is the law that when you do a big infrastructure, it's always got to be prevailing wage, which is generally code for union wages. So the point is, there are certain things that I think would make it easier. Many of the Republican governors and Governor Whitman can speak to this, would be interested in some infrastructure money if Biden can find a cheap way to bond it or whatever, to find the cash at a time we're going to be under huge fiscal strain in D.C. But for states that don't have the labor profile, of some of the blue states where Joe's political base is, you've got it. When, when Wilson had the earthquakes here and had to rebuild freeways and bridges quickly, it, you know, they, they proved with, some, and the, the labor came to the table. This is a labor state in California, but a lot got done at lower price than the Republicans. That's kind of entrenched in our world as a good model. So Biden has to do some things like that. If they just override the filibuster with the Senate majority and ram a lot of stuff through, the Republicans will harden. They will win in the short term, but then the Republicans will be in a competitive position in in the midterms to take the Senate back, and then, you know, it's one step forward, two back. So there's got to be a good Biden deal-making point of view, but I think there's support for it, particularly from Republicans who aren't elected federally.
1: I promise we'd turn this over to questions, and Mike, I think you're going to get the questions and ask them.
0: Uh, This is a question from Kimberly Blitz. It is difficult for individuals to embrace more changes to help with the climate crisis because Americans have spent a lot of money to re-landscape, conserve water, buy new cars, buy organic, replace appliances and light bulbs, and still our utility and other bills have increased dramatically. It appears that the only beneficiaries have been billionaire businesses. How can we motivate people if they can't experience noticeable benefits of their behavior modifications?
4: Ooh, I can not uh,
0: yeah, take, can that, take one.
4: that one because I do write about this in the Optimist telescope. So for one thing, I would say those individual actions are meaningful. They are not meaningless. They may feel at times like they are pushing the boulder up the hill, uh, but they have a huge impact. The way that they change norms, uh, the way they change consumer habits. So car companies, Uh, I mentioned lighting, there's so many ways in which consumer signals about the kinds of products we want and the kinds of products that we are willing to buy can actually drive changes, drive invention, uh, help bring to the fore uh, greener ways of living. And uh, I also recommend the work of Robert Frank, uh, who's written about behavioral contagion, um, emeritus, uh, Princeton professor, economist. Uh, who wrote about the way that smoking, basically the culture and the norms around smoking, helped make some of the shifts that we needed to see in terms of regulation and helped make some of the political shifts that we wanted to see in terms of understanding and recognizing the science of the dangers of of cigarette smoking. And a very similar thing I think is happening with climate change. The more that people act individually, uh, the more they're able to change what their communities do and that community level change makes a difference. I will also say that uh, one of the most important decisions you can make as an individual is to vote. And you can do that with the long-term in mind. You can do that with the climate crisis in mind and not just in the presidential election, which is I think when a lot of people get motivated to vote, but really voting up and down on that ballot. There are ballot initiatives uh, in California uh, that relate to the climate crisis. Local, um, local utilities and their interactions with um, local boards and municipal uh, politicians, those are ways you can have an impact on the problem that will be bigger than just your own um, sort of isolated act. Uh, but, don't, but don't stop those acts because it's not mutually exclusive to see the kind of change we need to happen in financial institutions and in our political institutions um, and the kind of change that you can make happen in your own life. And, and we know that it actually can help build people's willingness to do more.
3: It's always hard to persuade people of the, the cumulative impact of individual behavior. That's one of the toughest things to get people to appreciate, but it really does make a difference when you change your behavior and your neighbor does. It may seem inconsequential, but it's, it can be huge. And one of the best tools actually that we've seen from the federal government was the Energy Star program. Once uh, people could see how much energy they would save and what it meant in dollars to them, and they bought more of those products, those products came down in prices, and they're very competitive, if not less expensive now than some of the fancier models. And So it does work. It, it does work if you give people the kind of alternative that doesn't require them spending themselves into, into poverty.
0: John wants to know, Jan, why are American politicians so hesitant to adopt plans that have worked in other countries? For example, Germany is transitioning from coal with a 10 to 20 year plan to retire elderly coal workers, retrain middle aged coal workers and train younger people in different skills. So why are we, why, at least from Jan's point of view, we're bad at transitioning workers out of industries that are heavy carbon contributors into new things. Why aren't we doing better?
2: I'll take a stab at that, and, and Mike, I'm going to actually uh, uh, repeat something that you said, which is, you know, we, we have, in this very divisive, uh, and in a moment, false information can go out on the internet, we attack every idea as a bad idea, a socialist idea, and that if you really care about American ingenuity and American independence, it has to be our idea and um i i I have no explanation for that except that that is in fact the situation we find ourselves in more than the obvious that we are uh not really uh interested as a global society in fact-finding and evidence-based strategies and solutions so i did something a little bit different and maybe interested was a bit harsh we've lost ready opportunities to embrace that again, uh, which means we've got a lot more to do in our education system so that people really get the benefit of seeing best practices around the world and weighing in in that context. But we did in our energy transition law, uh, because the debate is also uh, happening here. What are you going to do, particularly with minority workers in rural communities as we transition out of fossil fuels They are losing their jobs and in a small rural community, a thousand people that have nowhere to go. And this whole notion again, they're going to all be wind energy experts and coders isn't going to happen. And uh, so what we did is we put equity money into two places. One, that we're going to actually give those payments like a stimulus check every month $20 $20 million worth to those workers and their families. You have to take the consequences of not having a job off the table. They have to know that they have real opportunity, and then another $20 million into the community to redesign their economic opportunities and to shift this group into what that is with them at the table. And then we've aligned and funded our community colleges to make sure that they're ready to do that retraining, whatever it is. If you can't give folks economic security in that transition, then you just have a battle because they're, they're left behind. We should have learned that, what we did in coal mining, and we didn't. And so we keep getting into this debate. Germany invests, and they do it early in training and educating young people and their families about a whole host of opportunities same in switzerland they actually tell you which track you're going to do in your uh the last part of your high school education so that they've got a real willingness to take best practices no matter what age you are uh and to get that education so we're gonna have to retool our public education system we're gonna have to make sure that we don't leave workers behind and i get it it means that we got to come up with more money but those are economic investments for the long term, and I can move quicker into those renewable energy as an example, aerospace as another example, movie as another example, outdoor as another example, those, I get returns from those economic industries that shore up my ability to keep my commitments. Uh, if, If we don't do that for workers and their families, then I think that they're just gonna reject Germany's idea, Europe's ideas, Japan's ideas, because you know what? They don't make any difference to me today. I can't pay my mortgage. And so it's very easy to just reject it as being a bad idea. Well, I was just going to say that one of the first things that I did when I
3: became governor was send my uh, commissioner of community affairs, I actually had to public policy, <clears throat> excuse me, at that point, over to the Netherlands to look at what they were doing in dealing with sea level rise, because New Jersey is a coastal state, 127 miles of beaches, And uh, we were clearly going to face that. And people really accepted uh, the ideas that they brought back, the team that went over that brought back, and we were able to institute some of them. So there is some of that going on, but I agree absolutely. You know, you can't tell a 40- or 50-year-old coal miner that you're going to do away with a coal plant and you're going to turn them into a high-tech person because it's not going to happen. But certainly the states and the federal government together can provide incentives for new manufacturing to be located near areas where they can work because they can be incredible at manufacturing things, putting things together. And we want to get more of that going back in the, the United States and there's a way to do it. And so that's where the things like incentives should come in and the retraining, but within the framework of what is possible, what how, how will they adapt Something that's reasonable for them to expect can happen and can make a difference. And in the interim, you have to give them something that allows them to live while they're going through that
0: training. So Joe Arvi has a great question. Uh, And I'm going to throw this one to Governor Whitman to start with because she served in the cabinet in uh, this area. Bloomberg is reporting that Biden, if elected, may create a federal climate change office agency and name a climate czar, along the lines of what was done to create DHS under George W. Bush. Is this a good idea? What would such an office actually do? Make laws, enforcement, and what kind of nonpartisan persons should lead it? So a czar, what do we think?
3: Well, I hate czars. I hate that title anyway. <laughs> but there is the Office of Environmental Quality within the White House, not that this White House has used it. But that was the office that was to bring together all of the different agencies that, and the parts of them that dealt with climate or dealt with the environment and help coordinate it. So they were harmonized. I, you know, yes, I, I, it's fine to have a special commission, but you've got the tools there. You have got committed public servants who have been doing this for years in every whether it's interior or epa it uh, over at uh, commerce you have people who understand this what you need to do is bring them together you don't necessarily need to bring in a whole new group of people who may not understand the legal history the regulatory history behind what's been done and how they use the tools but use the tools we have we have those people we have the various agencies within departments that deal and focus on this Bring them together, coordinate them, whether you do it through the Office of Environmental Quality or you set up another group and have someone with overall responsibility for that. But it doesn't need to be a whole new creation, I don't believe. I mean, if that's what people want, fine, but I just think it's, I don't want to waste any time on this. I don't want to waste time bringing people up to snuff on on what's been happening and what we can do and what's legally, uh, what we're legally able to do and what the what we've already seen in the past that has worked or hasn't worked. I would be more focused on harnessing what we already have within the federal government and bringing that together under whatever structure you want, whether the office of environmental quality isn't the one to do it, then so be it to have another one, but don't, don't stop and wait and bring in a whole bunch of new people.
2: I would actually take a little bit different approach than uh, governor Whitman. Um, uh, There's something definitely lost in in, uh, the titles of czars. But when you've got such a broken government, and it is incredibly difficult to navigate, and you have your new appointees with incredible folks there, that I have no disagreement, that uh, you've got incredible expertise. It's exactly the problem we have with COVID. We aren't bolstering and supporting that expertise, but it's so eroded. And I took on a government that uh, cut Uh, tough budget years, uh, no investment, no looking at jump-starting anything, just decimated the departments. And as a former cabinet secretary for three different governors for 18 years, sometimes uh, just d- debating with another leader on a particular topic. So aging is in Medicaid and is in the Department of Health and grandparents raising grandchildren was over at Children, Youth, and Families, and then my own department. And you would lose momentum trying to get the perfect resolution if everybody lined up. I do think some one person that makes sure that you don't get into a circular effort, really trying to solve these problems and breaks through, but also lifts your experts up. And then maybe it's temporary and then moves them into executing all of those efforts. I think that there's no real wrong approach as long as it's a committed approach to utilizing the expertise that we have in the federal government and to make sure that we're executing on these ideas and strategies as quickly as possible.
1: Bina, you wanted to say something, I think.
4: Well, I don't want to belabor this point if there are other questions, but I'll just give a quick practical answer to this question, which actually in some ways is is, uh, agreeing with both governors in this case, which is that, you know, in the Obama White House, dealing with climate change, uh, the Council on Environmental Quality was very involved in and was charged with the sort of resilience agenda. The Office of Science and Technology Policy also had a charge with respect to the climate Uh, uh, action plan of President Obama. The State Department was in charge of the negotiations um, and developing uh, the strategy around Paris. And then you had multiple federal agencies, because this is a problem that touches everything, which is where we started, right? It's the Defense Department. It's um, the EPA. It's the DOE. It's right. So there's just an alphabet soup of agencies that are involved and needed to be mobilized on this issue. And I think until um, John Podesta came in, who, you know, for full disclosure, I worked worked for him, until he came in to the West Wing as counselor to the president, he was sort of working directly with the chief of staff. He's the former chief of staff, of course, to Bill Clinton. But until that happened, it was sort of like everyone was uh, in the second term, I should say, because the first term was a very different different uh, situation, and I wasn't there for that. But, but the, the The idea that there were all of these different people taking different pieces of the puzzle in different agencies that didn't have one person who just sort of advocated for uh, the policies to be advanced, um, had the ear of the president, um, could just get things done and decide what needed to be prioritized, I think was just from a practical standpoint uh, difficult. And once that person was in place, it doesn't need to be a whole office, to Governor Whitman's point, but a person who draws on all of the strengths of the federal government to get an agenda done.
0: Okay, our last question is from one of our students, Camilio Dazamanga. And here's the question. Is focusing on how consumers can stop climate change convenient for corporations? Does it deflect attention from who is really to blame and allow corporations and the federal government to avoid the difficulties that come with enacting legislation and implementing regulations? And I'll quickly say, if you can move the free market you've moved the biggest thing you got to move on climate change. So I think it's more than a blame game. But what do our experts think? Who wants to go first?
4: I think that, so the question is really about whether individuals should be held responsible or corporations and politicians more so. Is that, am I understanding that right?
0: Yeah, I think talk about consumers just a way for the corporations to avoid, you know, blame and, and politicians to avoid blame.
4: I'll just repeat what I said before which and then say something else, but they're not mutually exclusive. So consumers can take ownership because consumers have influence. We have influence over the companies, what we buy. We can choose not to buy from one company. We can choose to buy from another. We can choose who to vote for. We can choose what to vote for. And we have to exercise that power, and it's very important. That said, in, corporations are in no way... Um, off the hook from dealing with this issue. Our politicians are in no way off the hook and part of how we hold them accountable is to recognize as as a citizenry where our influence and where our power is. Uh, Certainly when it comes to climate change, we cannot ignore that the fossil fuel industry manipulated and misled the American public about the science of climate change, that it has resisted and lobbied against political action, on climate change. And so I think there's a lot of accountability there. And some people are pursuing that accountability through lawsuits, attorneys general and states. There is a way to create accountability through investment as well. There, you know, asset managers now can be creating funds that uh, decarbonize, that look at other sorts of innovation. Uh, There are ways that we can uh, mobilize um, all kinds of financial incentives, basically to move companies away from a fossil fuel past and into a more vibrant clean energy future.
3: I would agree 100% with that. There's no question that it's not an either or. It's, it's all of the above. And you do see investment managers now creating funds that are focused just on green, on reducing carbon, on making green investments, renewable investments. So that's all good. But nobody's left off the hook. And what you really have to have is enforcement of the regulations we have. And Unfortunately, we haven't had that enforcement over the last three and a half years.
0: Okay, Bob, I think that wraps up our time for questions. you want to uh, wrap
1: up? I want to thank our panelists. This was an absolutely great panel, lively, interesting, and insightful. I want to thank our audience, uh, and I want to thank the Wrigley Institute, our partner here at USC, and the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival, our other partner. Uh, We've been doing a series of these programs, but I think this one was particularly enlightening. By the way, on November 13th, if any of you are interested, we will have the annual Warsaw Conference on Practical Politics, which will focus on the 2020 presidential election. And we have some terrific guests. But thank you, Governor Luhan Grisham. Thank you, Governor Whitman. Thank you, Abina Venkatraman. You know, I really practice this name. And thank you, Mike. And we'll see you all soon. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Thank
1: you all.
4: Thank you. This was wonderful. It's an honor.
0: Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show 5 stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast from. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs.